Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. After doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Reflecting on this, I decided to follow her advice, and I noticed profound changes in my own dogs. Enhanced energy, healthier skin, and an overall younger demeanor. It's truly heartwarming to see them so vibrant and full of life. Go to badlandsfood.com hometown and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash hometown. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When things go as well as they did during the pig war, it can be easy to forget just how wrong they could have gone. I asked former Chief of Interpretation and Historian for the San Juan Island National Historic Park, Mike Voorhe, how the pig war might have ended otherwise. Any kind of an incident, any kind of a hot-headed incident, an American soldier uh, shooting a British naval officer or one of the Royal Marines that was on the ship. But Silas Casey was the American commander on site. And my feeling is that Casey, the combination of Casey and Admiral Baines and officers like uh, Captain Jeffrey Fitzhornby would not have allowed that to take place. They seem to have a pretty good handle on how things uh, should work. But those people were not always the one in charge. And any time you might have this pent-over tension, with the stakes this high, it can feel easier in the moment to just fight and get it over with. Later, after the joint occupation was established, the British did not want George Pickett, his company, to be the first company of American soldiers for the joint occupation. And Douglas specifically asked General Scott 
to replace Pickup with another officer. So, Scott did exactly that. He chose a more level-headed, more competent officer in Captain Lewis Case Hunt. But Hunt was a bit of an idiot, and he was very stuck on himself, and he liked to write lots of letters, and he hated General Harney. He wasn't the only company great officer to hate William S. Harney, but he was the only one that was dumb enough to write about Harney in the newspapers. In one particular article, it referred to him as a silly, stupid old goose. This gave Harney just the excuse he needed to shake things up again and inch his country back in the direction of war. He sent Pickett and his company back to the island, which was a counter to General Scott's ruling. And not only that, Harney says, I don't recognize General Scott's solution here with Governor Douglas, his arrangement. I don't agree. I don't recognize it. I'm now the commanding officer here. And all of a sudden, everybody's in a tizzy again. Only the Admiral Baines says, no, we are not going to rise to this occasion. We are not going to do that. We're going to hold fast. This cannot be the decision of the United States government. And sure enough, when the United States government found out about this, found out what Hardy had done, he was fired. They got rid of him. But in the, the profound wisdom of the United States military, instead of sending him home, they gave him the command of the Department of the West, which was headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri. So he ended up getting a far more important job on the eve of the Civil War than the one on San Juan. So that was an instance where it could have flared up again, and it did not because of the moral integrity of someone like uh, Rear Admiral R. Lambert Baines. And he was recognized by his government. He was given a knighthood uh, by Queen Victoria. One of the biggest surprises for me in this story was the involvement of Captain George Pickett just three years before his famous charge at Gettysburg. Tensions between northern and southern states were already high in 1859, and talk of secession was in the air. Some northern officers, including General George McClellan, believed that Harney and Pickett were deliberately trying to provoke a war on San Juan Island. Both men were from the south. They were sympathetic with the southern cause, and repeatedly nudged the crisis toward violent escalation. If the North and South had a common enemy in Great Britain, they might be more inclined to overlook their own differences. Or better yet, the government in Washington might become so preoccupied with this other war that the South could slip out the back door, so to speak, and secede. There's no way to know the truth of these stories, but they add an interesting wrinkle to the San Juan story. Of course, in the 150 years since the standoff at Griffin Bay, Great Britain has become America's greatest ally. Mike shared another story toward the end of our conversation that I thought was a telling antidote as to just how far the two countries have come. The Americans rushed up there with their great big garrison flag to run up the British flagpole. But when they got there, they discovered the flagpole had been chopped down. 
Well, the British did replace the flagpole, but they didn't replace it until 1998 when the National Park was created in 1966. The National Park Service erected an 80-foot flagpole on which to fly the British garrison flag, but it was eroded at the base and had to be cut down in 1997. The, the park applied. I was here then. Uh, we applied uh, to the National Park Service to replace the pole. They didn't issue us the money. I was friends with the British Consul General in Seattle, Michael Upton. We had met before I took this job here, and I called him up and I said, hey, we don't have any money to replace that pole. And he says, oh, we can't have that. And he found a way to, to have the British government send us 7,000 pounds, $12,000 for a new pole. 90, beautiful 80-foot pole, fiberglass pole. The Park Service had to match the money to install it. And we had a big celebration in 1998, huge celebration. That's all the British wanted for it. And so they replaced the pole. So we have this great relationship with Great Britain. But not only that, the boundary between Canada and the United States is the longest unfortified border in the world. It's the longest unfortified border in the history of the world, which is a fitting legacy to the peace that was assured here on San Juan Island in 1859 and finally in 1872. The park itself, where Mike once worked, and Cyrus once worked, and Cyrus currently is, was one of our more memorable stops on our trip out west. It's one of the most unusual parks I've ever been in, due to the fact that it's divided into halves. Each half is an opposite corner of the island. I asked Cyrus to describe the general layout. We are park in two units on opposite sides of the island. So we preserve two very different landscapes occupied by two very different empires. The landscape of English camp, where the English Royal Marines were from 1860 until 1872, is wooded, it's sheltered, it's much colder and rainier than the area here at American camp where I'm based most of the time. American camp, by contrast, is drier. We actually have four times fewer rainy days than English camp has. We are directly in the Olympic and Cascade rain shadows but we're extremely windy because we are directly exposed to the Harrow Strait. So it's a narrow area of land with two bodies of water on both ends. And for American camp especially, it's a very dramatic landscape because the actual historic area where the encampment was located is part of an open prairie where you've got visibility down to the sea and where you're highly exposed to the wind and elements. And it's the historic structures are a small part of the unit. Much of the area is the surrounding landscape, which thanks to the, I guess, 50, how many years have we been around? We've been around for 56 years, 56 and a half years. In the 56 and a half years that we've been a national park, it, is engaged, it has been significantly revegetated. And it's beginning to take on the appearance of wilder land than what it was when it was an agricultural landscape and a military landscape. Before San Juan, I've never seen two locations so close with such radically different weather. 
these camps are just 15 miles apart, on the same small island, and the meteorological differences between them are almost night and day. Yeah, and that comes from which mountains what is next to, right? Like, English camp is directly across from Victoria. You're about 12 and a half miles from Vancouver Island's biggest city. And on the other side is Bellingham, whereas here at American camp, you have the Olympic rain shadow at Squim and the Cascades rain shadow on the other side. So a double rain shadow situation. More than just topography and the weather separates the two forts. They're radically different and their layouts in general feel. The American is very exposed and rugged and utilitarian. The British feels more like a tiny summer camp. There are gardens, flowers, and tree groves. It's very tidy and quaint, and feels very English in that sense. I asked Cyrus to say more about what the forts would have been like in the 1860s compared with today. So, American camp and English camp had far more buildings, right? There were barracks at both of them. There, We only have three buildings at American camp. There were more than a dozen. At English camp, we have, I think, four or five buildings. There were many more. English camp was actually kind of like more like a resort than a fort. They had a billiard room. They had a bowling area. They had very fancy officers' quarters. They ate extremely lavishly. They had a camp library. American camp, it was more sparse. But we were still able to get funding to install a telegraph line between both areas and have a telegraph reader's office. We had a school for soldiers' children and for the children of the American settlers. And the actual fortification, the redoubt, was an earthwork earthwork sort of structure. So it isn't obvious even today that you're on a very well-engineered military structure. And part of the interior has been lost. So that's one of the reasons the interior collapsed years ago, so we don't have that area of it available. It's the historic, the historic landscape has greatly changed, right? Once, once the military, militaries left, the, uh, a lot of the structures were hauled off by local farmers to use as homes. And so we lost a lot of the historical structures for that reason. In fact, the structures in American camp were all located carefully by historians who figured out what buildings in town were actually American camp structures, and then we brought them back. Is there a lot of British people who come visit the park? A fair number. More when the ferry is running over to Canada. Right now, the ferry to Canada is not running, so we don't get as many then. But we we always have a few people interested in royal military history or who see it as an opportunity. More Canadians, obviously, given our proximity. Another interesting aside, the author of the unofficial official manual for every corporate meeting from the last 100 years was U.S. Army officer stationed here on San Juan. His name was Henry Martin Robert, and I'm referring, of course, to Robert's Rules of Order. So we're noting our, the main fortification here at American Camp, the Redoubt, was built by Lieutenant Henry Martin Roberts, who would later go on to write Roberts' Rules of Order. He was later deployed to New Bedford, Massachusetts, home of another national park, New Bedford Whaling National Historical Park, which I actually that. And while he was there in 1862, he was the chair of a religious meeting 
of Baptists. And apparently whenever they were discussing got so out of hand that the meeting descended into chaos and Robert went home upset. This religious meeting had turned into a fracas and he decided he wanted to create a system for running meetings in order to guarantee that kind of anarchy would never take place again. From the moment we arrived there, I was wondering where the name Friday Harbor came from. Cyrus explained its origin. Peter Friday, or Polima, as he was known in Hawaiian, was one of the shepherds that the Hudson's Bay Company landed here. And he landed here, I guess, in 1853. He worked for the Hudson's Bay Company in what is now the town of Friday Harbor was where he homesteaded and where his sheepfold was located. So Friday, is, like Paul Lima, means Friday in, in Hawaiian. His name was a birth name, like a day name. Would, some, many cultures have this where your, your name is the day you were born. And the story goes that a group of Americans showed up in Friday Harbor and asked him, what's the name of this place? And he thought they were saying, what's your name? So he said Friday, the English translation of his name. And so they named it Friday's Harbor, and it eventually became Friday Harbor. One question I had from the moment I knew the origin of the name Pig War, and this may be a question you have too, is what did they do with the body of the pig? Well, that's a question that's asked by every visitor. <laughs> Usually it's in the form of, who ate the pig? Oh, and I'll say, oh, oh, very clever, sir. I've never heard that one before. Well, who knows? And now I don't know. We have no idea what happened to the pig. Nobody wrote about it. As I said before, other than thinking it was kind of a a silly, ridiculous pretense for a military standoff, the real issue here. And you must not forget this. The pig is fun. It seems ridiculous. It's silly. We all like to talk about it. But the issue was the boundary between the United States and Great Britain. That was the issue. And the possession of the archipelago. Now, the archipelago, you're talking about San Juan Island, is 55 square miles. It's 16 and a half miles long and seven and a half miles wide at its widest point. Now, the British Empire could very well do without the San Juan Islands, but it was a point of honor. It was a point of honor between the United States and Great Britain. It was diplomatic maneuvering. We think the boundary should be here. No, the boundary should be there. We see this played out. It played out in Europe a hundred times. It's playing out in Europe right now, violently. Boundaries are a major bone of contention be, uh, throughout world history between nations. And this was no less, no less a boundary issue. It was one that the British wanted the Americans to resolve. They wanted it resolved fairly. And they were willing to park their Royal Navy here in this region and station a company of Royal Marines on the island to ensure that was resolved in an honorable and gentlemanly way. So that's something that people should never lose sight of. That's what this issue is about. The fact that the military conflict was almost ignited by the pig 
It seems like one of the takeaways from this story is that sometimes the only way to get a war right is by not actually fighting it. I love this idea, that our commemoration of the Pig War is a kind of monument to peacekeeping. British officers especially showed remarkable restraint in preventing bloodshed. There were Americans too, like George Pickett, for example. He comes into this really ignorant of what the Treaty of Oregon was all about and also the permutations of the Samlin Islands. We tend to run over details, and it, it was no less then than it is now. Now we always go for the soundbite, or, and most people like their news packaged, and they like people to give it to them, and they operate on preconceived notions of what an issue is all about. Somebody tells them, oh, it's this and this, and they'll accept that without doing any of their own research or reading beyond or listening beyond or watching beyond one certain take. We see it happening today all the time. It was no less than you were influenced by whatever newspaper you read. You were influenced by the political standing of that newspaper and you formed your opinions accordingly or you formed them not because because you read something, you form them because somebody told you something. So George Pickett, obviously, had never read in depth about what the Treaty of Oregon was all about, that the islands were held in dispute, that the boundary really hadn't been determined yet, so that the islands didn't belong to anybody. And he comes charging in and posts this proclamation, and It was only after he was educated. He was educated with his feet in the fire. He found out from Winfield Scott, who braced Harney and Pickett up in his cabin at Fort Vancouver, and Pickett had gone down there for court-martial duty. He called these guys into his cabin and chewed them out for what he called, quote-unquote, their little conquest and explained to them the facts of life about what the Treaty of Oregon was all about and that their behavior had nearly precipitated a conflict between two world powers. In other words, you idiots. So when Pickett came back to San Juan, Hardy dispatched him back to the island. Pickett was a different man. He had learned what the dispute was all about. He had obviously researched the details And when he arrived on the island, he made a point of communicating with his opposite here, Captain George Basil Jett of the Royal Marines, and was an example of circumspection and moderation, and a guy that was willing to do whatever it took to maintain peaceful relations with the British and work together to maintain peaceful relations on the island. So that's one of the, one of the big lessons here, I think, is to work out the details for yourself before you form an opinion that might be toxic to your fellows. A great lesson that we all could brush up on. Listen, communicate, change when necessary, and of course, defer to diplomacy 
rather than rushing into war. There's a reason you've likely never heard of the pig war. It wasn't really a war. Wars make headlines. Peace is boring, way less sexy than hero-making, life-taking conflict. So many people say they love peace, but all they talk about and read about is war. Mike took the opposite approach and promotes this non-war as a model for non-violent diplomacy, though he knows it lacks the same star power as a bloody battle. He also knows that this is a story and an example that the world needs now as much as ever. I'll give you an example. Right after I published my book, Turner Pictures contacted me and they were interested in the story, but Eventually, they made the decision not to do a film about it. You remember Turner Pictures had done the Gettysburg film and what have you. Well, this this wasn't sexy enough for the people in that company at the time because there was no war. It's called the Pig War. The title is facetious. There was never a war. That's one of the things I always talk about with people. They always talk about the war. And I said, well, it wasn't a war. The war is when people get killed wholesale. when when you've got surgeons working on people that have lost their arms and legs, or you're putting people on the ground in several pieces, that's war. That's a war. There was no war here. It it was worked out. The joint occupation, I always delineate there was a confrontation, a crisis where you have contention and it's almost to the brink, but then it doesn't happen. It's resolved. The pig war crisis is the way I have to delineate it for people to boil it down is the pig war crisis. And then the peaceful joint occupation of the island. So no war, diplomatic solution, not sexy, <laughs> but pretty fun. If you read my book, you'll see that an awful lot went on during the joint occupation. I love the book and I think you will too. You can buy it on Amazon, like I did, or your nearest bookstore. The Pig War Standoff Griffin Bay has a new publisher, Basalt Books, which is an imprint of Washington State University. The book has been in print for 23 years. I like to think it's the definitive account of the crisis, and it's also highly entertaining, I hope. And I think that if you'd like to learn more about this topic, that's where you ought to go. The Pig War Standoff at Griffin Bay, the Salt Books. I'd like to thank Mike and Cyrus for joining me over the last two episodes and for sharing their expertise. These are literally the best two people in the world I could have spoken with on this forgotten history. And I've been thrilled to have them both with us. Cyrus works today in a similar position to the one Mike once filled, stationed at the San Juan Island National Historic Park. As you already know, he's a great storyteller in his own right. If you ever get the chance, go and visit him at the brand new visitor center. We're opening our new visitor center in July and we, it's going to go way in depth into a lot of the untold stories that we dealt with here. And it's very exciting because we have been a national park for over 60 years, but we have never had a proper visitor center. Everything in the past is ad hoc and we finally have gotten a visitor center. So I'm going to be doing a big uh, media push on the visitor center starting next week. I just put out, I just drafted my comms plan yesterday. And we're going to be targeting as many people as possible because 
we're getting proud of our work. As they should be. And as a point of clarification, that visitor center will be located on the southern tip of the island, an American camp. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. <laughs> 